Welcome to a very special episode of Educated by Black. Um, this episode has been cooking in the oven for months and months and months. I think, I don't even know if the pandemic had started. No, I lied. The pandemic had started uh, when this podcast was in ideation stages. Um, but I am so excited uh, that I have Melissa on this particular episode. Um, it's a slight departure to what I'm currently doing. We're focusing on uh, men in education, but I really wanted this episode to be part of it and to kind of be live because one of the things I want to talk about uh, moving forward is how the experience of Black, black educators is a universal one to an extent, but also there are flavors that are slightly nuanced depending on the geographic region of where we find ourselves to be and the tasks at hand. Um, so I'm gonna give a very brief introduction to Melissa because this is a person who I've only come across online <laughs> and uh, very, say good, sorry. It's an old boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's old boy, but it's it's been fantastic because Melissa has a uh, Twitter handle, and that Twitter handle is just gem after gem after gem. It's very thought provoking. It is one that, like, I've also seen um, reused or reappropriated, if you like, on on Instagram from time to time. It's like, who is this person? Who is this handle? And note that I'm not saying the handle because I'm going to let Melissa introduce herself in a moment. Um, and so I really took a lot from like, this is an educator that thinks the way in which I think the things that like are coming out from this person's um, Twitter account, like, I think this, I agree with this, I like this. Um, and then a new story came out um, about Melissa and two other Black women as well in education. And I was just like, oh my God, like there are three Black women who have been promoted to really high positions in um the field that they're in and so to kind of give a bit of a understanding in in Canada you have district school boards which is a slight departure to what you have in the UK um, and so a district school board I guess the closest equivalent might be a combination between a local education authority and a multi-academy trust um, so it's like a, a bunch of schools in a sort of regional um, area uh, and so Melissa's one of the three black women that promoted to like a really high position in there and so I it was on a news um, new cycle. I noted the names, I wrote them down. I then went on LinkedIn and I like added all three of the black women uh, whose names are mentioned in the news story. And it was funny because at one stage, Melissa goes to me, you know, you also follow me on Twitter already, right? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Um, so it was really nice to then put a picture to the person who was also sending out these tweets and then kind of get an understanding of, of Melissa's background. And so um, you can already tell that I'm excited. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Melissa to give herself um, an opportunity to, to say who she is, her background, um, what brings her to where she currently is in education. And uh, yeah, we'll get the conversation going. Awesome. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, again, your patience and waiting and um, for months for me is very admirable. So thank you for just waiting for so long. Uh, so my name is Melissa Wilson, and I'm a vice principal currently. Uh, and I say currently because I've had five different roles in the school board. Uh, so I did start off as a classroom teacher teaching geography and history and civics and law, and, you know, topics in the social sciences. And then I moved on to being an equity resource teacher at the central board office. And then from there, I became the coordinator of indigenous education and then the coordinator of anti-black racism education and then a vice principal. And so I've so been about this. <laughs> yeah, I've been around a minute. And I think what you're referring to with the three women is um, just amazing intellectual women that I 
get to work it with uh, Fiona Lloyd Henry and Natasha Henry. And we had did a panel together uh, this um, in September uh, as part of a professional learning day that we co-created for the entire school board. And mm -hmm. so I think that's what you're referring to. Indeed it is. Together. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of like my professional life. I've also taught in colleges. Uh, I taught in a, a local college here for about five years, teaching law and sociology and history classes to adults. Uh, and then I think you're referring to my Twitter handle as drawn to intellect. <laughs> so um, yeah, Twitter is an interesting beast. Um, so I've been on there for a couple of years now. Interestingly, I joined because I was peer pressured by my colleagues to do so at the time because I was working at the central board office, but then it just never stopped. So I owe them some thanks. I definitely <laughs> owe them some thanks. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter because Twitter is very useful for me in terms of, I feel like it's my anti-racist journal or diary um, in terms of, you know, when my thoughts are kind of overloaded, sometimes I just put them on Twitter to kind of get them out of my head. Um, yeah, or, or if I'm test driving like a concept or something, I'll put it on Twitter mm -hmm. to see what or say. Um, but, you know, it's also something that I toy around with deleting all the time. And I think anyone that's been on Twitter for a, a length of time has gone through this kind of like emotional, uh, you know, swing set with, um, with Twitter. So, uh, so recently I like deleted all my tweets, which was like a moment for me and forever to do it. I don't even really know why I deleted all my tweets, but I did. <laughs> right. But again, someone asked, you know, like what's going to happen to them? I'm like, I'll recreate them. Like it was yeah, all exactly. my stuff anyways, right? Really <laughs> so, that. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have a burner account. I know most people do, but for me, I just, it's straight up. This is who I am. This is what I think all the time. I'm obsessed with race and racism. And those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts on Twitter, right? And I sometimes it. people, mostly it's myself. So besides <laughs> that, um, I'm an aunt to several nieces and nephews. And that's one of the most important roles that I have in life. And I'm also a wife and I have a Doberman. Besides that, my education is something that um, is something that I, I speak about because I've been in school forever. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been in school in university since I was 18, you know, so I've been in school for, you know, more than 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm finally this June defending my PhD and going to be done uh, that part of my life for now. So that is um, so fantastic. I wish you luck with that. Dr. Wilson to come. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So the podcast itself deals with the sort of notions of blackness as it comes up in education, hence, you know, educating while black. And I guess one of the first, well, the first place to go is where has blackness made um, inroads into decisions that you've made uh, across your career so far? Yeah, so um, it's actually when I think about how it connects to my career, I actually have to stop and think about my own upbringing in the education system, right? Because now as an educator, I think of myself as a student as well. And I'm sometimes still to this day surprised that I became an educator because there really is just a dearth of representation of black women in education, especially in leadership roles. And so for someone like myself, um, you know, I didn't really get a lot of opportunities to imagine myself as a leader in education because I really didn't see a lot of people that looked like me, sounded like me, or did what I do around racism uh, in these roles. Um, in addition to that, when you're being trained to be an educator, so in Ontario, you have to go to teacher's college, you, you do your PQP is what we call it, the principal qualifications course. Uh, to become a vice principal or principal. And then the summer I'm starting my superintendent course. 
And so you really don't learn about blackness while being taught how, how to be a leader. Like it's very white, it's very white and masculine, right? And so all the all the people and theories and thoughts are all coming out of white communities, mm -hmm. right? Which is really awful, right? Because then I have to sit there and just take in more whiteness, which I already have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, because there's a lack of black people, you're also less likely to have black mentors right. that are educators as well. Right. And so for me, um, you know, even before how it's informed my career, um, it's just it's been a very alienating experience, I would say, in general, trying to be an educator and an educator and leader in uh, public education. And so that's why I did take graduate studies, actually. Um, and so um, I've had the opportunity of doing my master's of arts in equity studies, sociology and equity studies in education and now I'm uh, finishing my PhD in social justice education. And for me, that was very intentional because I, I knew that I had to do graduate work in order to learn about blackness, in right. order to study settler colonialism, in order to study black feminism. Anything with black or indigeneity is not offered to you in the public education system. Like you have to actively seek it out, pay for it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then find yeah. the scholars that speak specifically about that, right? And for me, uh, my my partner always jokes it's like my most expensive therapy right because like because it's like this once a week i get to go and sit and talk to people and problematize uh you know anti-black racism and settler colonialism uh, and that's all you get right because then you have yeah. to, yeah, real to go back into there yeah, we're white faces everywhere right there so so, um, you know, how it informs my career um, is, first of all, the choices that I've made in my career. Um, so when I first started teaching in 2008, that year I signed up to do my master's, right, um, in equity studies. And I remember, I will never forget this, that my colleagues at the time, I told them that I'm signing up for my master's. This is a big deal, right? Like you're celebrating yourself and, you know, excited about it and stuff. And I remember they were like, what's equity studies? Like, are you going into finances? And I was like, no, but I guess, you know, that's another field of equity studies. So I can see where you're going there. And when I would explain to people that I'm interested in race and racism, they would boldly say things to me like, why would you want to be interested in that? Where's that going to take you? Right. And yet that has literally been the foundation of much of my career now. Right. Is I became an equity resource teacher and then, you know, coordinator of indigenous education and a coordinator of anti-black racism education because of this like kind of unique and odd skill set knowledges that I have. Yeah. From even what you said so far around that, it's the absence of that, you know, helps white supremacy just continue, right? So the, the idea of, as you just mentioned, it didn't occur to your lecturers that there is plurality of ways to do this. It didn't occur to um, the, the, the courses that you had to learn as being an educator. It's the same thing with myself. Like I, I remember, I, I'm a historian that said, and so I had to intentionally at graduate school, at, well, at my degree level, that was when I started to learn about history that was not rooted in British notions of the rest of the world. And as you can probably imagine, when you talk about settler colonialism, yeah, it's French or it's British in Canada. And so imagine then being in the nebulous place of how they view the rest of the world. When you start learning, it's like, oh, so there's a, there's a counter to that interesting oh there's a there's a difference to that interesting and so um I think a departure that I think is also perhaps quite interesting to to talk about just real quick about how this informs I I've started my master's twice and I stopped um mm -hmm. reason being because the first one kind of came along with the package of 
the route into teaching that I went into and everyone kind of just decided to do their masters and as a masters in educational leadership and it was a bit paint by number situation for you to just get this masters because it was baked into this program but yep. it didn't teach anything about equity it didn't teach anything it was just literally the nuts and bolts that you probably get in a business administration uh postgraduate certificate kind of situation but applied to schools um and then I was doing another one which was a more around um curriculum and advanced educational practice great course but it was didn't have enough again equity or diversity even in terms of who to look at, notions of like, when we talk about mentoring, me as a black man being a mentor to white women, can we talk about like the sort of the gender split, the racial split, like where would I go to look for these things? None of these people had any range to have those kind of conversations. So it's the same, 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 but different. The idea that actually me holding back on doing a master's is in part because, yes, you know, the whitewashing of, or the sort of, as I said, the absence of, you don't need to worry about your identity. You don't need to worry about equity. You don't need to worry about any of those things. Here is just the course. That seems to be an additional extra burden that you are doing to yourself. Just do the thing as everyone else is doing and right. ergo just be the same carbon copy of the person that came before. So it's interesting how already there are some commonalities, even though they might present themselves as, as being a different experience. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that so many departments, so many universities have just a real lack of critical insight when it comes to uh, challenging systems of oppression or even acknowledging them. Right. Challenging, even acknowledging their presence <laughs> would be helpful, right? And that's actually what led me to the program that I'm in because it's actually the same program, it's just the name changed. Mm. Um, and so for me, it was very organic how it came about. Um, I, I started teaching, teaching full-time, mostly grade nine students. I was just like, you know, intellectually, I just need more, something else that's about part-time on the side. And I was reading a book called Race, Space, and the Law by Shireen Razak. And I just loved her writing so much. It was just so cutting and critical. And it was just a, an immersion of like racism and settler colonialism and feminism, exactly what I wanted to learn about. And I remember Googling her and finding out she was in Toronto. Oh, wow. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's like down the street from me. Like, where is this woman? And I found out the department she worked in. Again, it was called Sociology and Equity Studies at the time. And I ended up actually working with her. Like she was my supervisor. Oh, that's amazing. And so it was just very symbiotic. Um, and then, yeah. And so, and then I just carried on in the department. So, but the fact that I had to seek that out and also pay for it, like there's a very, you know, a very financial element of that as well. It's, it's, it's horrible, right? Because most Brilliant. people will never learn the type of information that I've learned, right? right. Unless you seek it out and pay for it. So mm -hmm. So yeah, so my graduate studies definitely uh, informed the work that I was doing because I was always challenging Eurocentric texts, uh, Eurocentric doc documentaries, uh, you know, white pedagogies, right? And, or even the way that people believe students should act in schools, mm -hmm. right? like be silent, be submissive. I always had the loud classroom where students, you know, if they want to sit on their desk, I don't care. <laughs> Earbuds in while they're while they're learning, you'd be surprised. They actually can listen to music and listen to you at the yes, same time. Can. You know what I mean? A if silent they, classroom is not a determinant of a learning classroom. Yeah, so absolutely. For 20 minutes, okay, great. You just have to catch up on the lesson when you get back. <laughs> like that's that's more work on you, right? Let me know what you need. Right? So you want to see my notes? Right. And so I just knew from a very early age that I just kind of did things differently. Um, but again, uh, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities to then do that explicitly in the work uh, that I do in different roles. 
But another role of Blackness in my career journey is always trying to, not trying to, always being intentional about uplifting and celebrating other Black women because there's so few of us. Um, you know, I think white supremacy wants us to challenge each other, right? And always fight each other and think there's only room for one of us. And I just think like that's bullshit and that we need to celebrate each other um, and, and celebrate and name the people who have paved the way for us. I really agree. Right? Because there's so few people and we often have um, what many of us call institutional amnesia. And so people who have literally dedicated oh their life work to creating, you know, equity studies in all its greatness and flaws. The fact is they still, someone sat at the table writing these documents and then developed the professional learning and passed that baton back on to you, mm. let's say like, hey, do this, right? And so like the Mary Samuel of Peel District School Board and the women I mentioned before, Natasha Henry, Fiona Lloyd Henry, Jewel Amoa, Camille Logan, Kika Ojo Thompson, Karen Murray from Toronto District School Boards, mm -hmm. Tana Turner, Patrika Dawes, Leslie Grant, like all these people who have literally paved the way for someone like me to come in and say what I do and, you know, say what I say and do what I do. That's not because of me. That's actually because of them, right? right? Opening the door and saying, yeah, we're, we are going to talk about white supremacy and I am going to show up in my full blackness, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm going to censor myself or shrink myself and I don't care to assimilate either, right? Because there, there's a big division of what's happening with my generation and the previous generation, right? And previous generations, because they were so close and some of them coming out of segregation, they had no choice but to do the respectability politics thing, right? And people wanted down our ancestors and disrespect our ancestors for doing that, but that was part of the game in the moment. Absolutely that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Survival, right? They yeah. were literally the first people to be introduced into the meetings, the first teacher, the first vice principal, the first superintendent. Yeah. Right. And so we think we're surrounded by whiteness. No, no, they were surrounded they were. by whiteness. And right? um, so. more muted and gagged than we yeah. are right now. Right. And I'm just noticing yet again, like the way in which you so readily and easily just listed the black women who, you know, when we, I guess a phrase is standing on the shoulders of giants, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I agree with that phrase. And I sometimes feel like the interpretation or the internalization of that phrase is to give so much reverence to a person that you only name one or two like a smattering and you don't give like everybody their roses and you don't give everybody a chance to to kind of say it's a community that's helped me to get to where I am and I think like the way in which you've just demonstrated how easy it is to say here is you know we're not using hashtag squad or hashtag this or hashtag whatever it's just here are the people here's what they did here's why I value them or I miss people like I feel sure. guilty Ready? Absolutely. Like, Twenty more, right? That came <laughs> to the top of my head. Really? <laughs> <It> was... really? <laughs> but I think like the the kind of like what I'm trying to 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 bookend is like I think it's so important again as just black folk to just notice and recognize and to speak about the achievements of other black folk as though it's it's expected, it's common, it's just the thing, it's yeah. just the how we get here because I think that sometimes we can mythologize and it's you know black excellence is a thing, it's true, but everything you know, while black is also a thing. And sometimes exactly what you just said, yeah. to do, to exist and to, to be self-preserving, uh, to be self-preserving in a space where there's even more white folk and even more white supremacy and to know the game of like what it was for our, you know, previous generation. And even to kind of know what the game is to pass out to generation come in is really important to be able to say that these are the people who 
have come before me and then this is what they had to deal with I recognize where I am now what's similar what's different to be able to then say what that looks like for those who are coming up after me and I think it's even more important than than doing it in a podcast or you know publicly speaking I say it to the people absolutely because I always believe to give someone the flowers absolutely showing up at the funeral and doing it there we go Right. So in the last two weeks, I've actually had two experiences where I turned on my camera to join a meeting and there were these giants on across the uh, joined in a larger meeting that I had no idea they would be there. And so in both experiences, and I'll just name them because they were actually both in that list of people that I just mentioned. Um, last week, I turned on a meeting and Tana Turner from Turner Consulting was there, um, who, again, is just like a giant in doing, you know, equity and race work for so long. And that's how I introduced her right. to my peer who was also in the meeting. Right. I was like, and I, and I think I literally called her like a boss, right? <laughs> I said, she is a boss in anti-racism work. And, you know, and, and I, because he needs to know that, right? This like to know this like recognize that she's here and like just recognize this moment right yes um and then just a couple days ago um i turned on a meeting again with multiple people and karen murray was there and she doesn't know me but i followed her career my entire career right and so i stopped and told her that like it was random it had no place in that meeting in front of other people but i was just like i just need you to know Absolutely. <laughs> i may not get this chance again <laughs> that like thank you for the work that you've done right it's like so we important. Need to normalize that, and that's right? authentic yeah fully it's like it's authentic it, we just need to normalize it it needs and this is again it doesn't need to be this big as you say at the end of something this reverence that's given to oh my god like i, I can't look at you in the eye because you're so amazing yeah, it's like it's just tell them yeah right because because the this work is often and i know this from doing it myself as well it's thankless work it is not only is it thankless but we experience violence while doing it right and so and so you get this absence of gratitude and nothing but violence then it's just like what's it all worth showing up to do it because the students right that we're trying to do this intergenerational civil rights work right so, I mean, the last thing of, you know, about the role of blackness in your career journey, you know, and I, I almost never talk about blackness in a negative way, uh, but I will just, you know, draw upon W.B. Du Bois's quote, which is, how does it feel to be a problem? Right. And that that really almost encapsulates how I've always felt that my body is taken up in different spaces. Right. So one of the perks of whiteness, and I've been trying to teach about whiteness as much as I can, because I think we're we have yet to name it and really Absolutely talk about agree. it is that white people get the advantage of showing up as just a person, as being neutral, unmarked by their race, right? So they walk into the room and everyone's, oh, hey, Phil, or whatever, and they yeah. just, it's just Phil. Like, Phil doesn't have to announce that he's a white man, right? right? And then, but yet as a Black person, like, I feel like people are always reading my body, like, whether it's me walking into a conference, whether it's me as a panelist, as I introduce myself as an administrator in schools or introduce myself to a class, you know what I mean? Like it always matters whether it's good or bad, but most of the time because of anti-black racism and how pervasive it is in public education, most of the time it is a negative detriment for me, really? right? And so I can never just be Melissa. I'm always like the black female Melissa, like yeah. that you know, person, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm that person. There's a, sorry, memory that comes to mind going back to one of those roles that I said I did, which was um, teach training. So part of it would be kind of like we saying about administration, have to go to schools, have to go and observe, have to go and see how the teachers are doing. And I do remember overhearing a conversation, these were black kids as well, um, overhearing a conversation where they said, uh, the teacher was teaching. It's like, who, who is that man? Like, who is he? Do you think, do you think he's important? Went silent. 
I think it might be Inspector, you know. No, nah, I don't think he's an Inspector. Why do you think he's an Inspector? Because he's black. Mm. But he's in a suit. Yeah, but have you seen a black Inspector, though? I don't think he's an Inspector. So even that, yeah. where I'm in a suit, I'm dressed, you know, as an, as a uh, visitor to the school, I'm dressed in my profession, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. Even these black kids have already undermined and undervalued um, who I am in the space because I couldn't be who they think I could be absolutely. because of exactly as you know because we are all taught by white supremacy of how to read each other absolutely right so it's not just white people reading it's all of us we are absolutely. all white supremacy we can't extract ourselves from it right the decolonizing work that we have to do with Brilliant. ourselves and each other right so. with that then I think like and I, I apologize for interrupting so much already because there's just so many things that's like that come to mind when you're speaking um, that are fantastic. I'm sure, though, just thinking about some of the the sort of formative experiences and uh, lessons that you have learned across your career, what are some of the formative experiences and and kind of lessons that kind of come to mind up until now? Yeah, so um, I was thinking about this question, and there is one formative experience. And uh, I, I hope I explain it well because it was quite a few years ago, but um, I, was, I was teaching at a college and I was teaching a class called sociology. Uh, it was an introductory course to sociology and one of the units was about race and racism. And when I say a unit, we usually covered a unit a whole night because I'd have these students in my classroom for you know three to four hours as a lecture, mostly as a lecture. And then, um, so the first time I taught this sociology class, it was maybe a week or two later I received a notice from the human rights department that I had been accused of being racist, right? And um, so fast forward, I'll, I'll tell you what the ending, it's actually not the lesson learned. So the ending is, is that um, of course I wasn't being racist, but people interpret that you're talking about racism and therefore, you know, you must be racist. Like that's kind of a very minimal, you know, ignorant way of understanding racism, right? Like how dare you even acknowledge white supremacy in the room? You must be racist for doing so, right? Um, everybody just wants everyone to be silent and not acknowledge uh, that. So, so fast forward to the ending, they had found out that a student in my class uh, had, who had accommodations was actually audio recording all of my classes. Right. And so they were actually able to go to that student. They offered the audio recording. And of course, there was no examples of racism. My PowerPoint that I offered them and my lecture notes completely aligned with almost every word that I said. And, and that's actually a thing that I do. Like I, I rehearse a lot. Mm. Um, and so so I was completely vindicated and the accusation was complete bullshit. But the lesson that I learned from that is that they still had to do an investigation because it was mandatory or because it was a student uh, sure. accusing me of something. And I was in the investigation, I was being investigated by a black woman in the middle of asking me a question so smoothly. Like, I mean, you wouldn't have even seen it coming. She just stopped the recording. She paused it. Like it was an old cassette tape, right? Yeah. I might be dead. I might be dating myself, but you remember I had like the keys and like you could dramatically like, yeah. pause it. So you, she dramatically paused it. And she said bluntly to me, she looked at me and she said, this will continue to happen to you people will continue to challenge you. You need to get your PhD and master this area because people will always challenge you. Yeah. She pressed play and we continued with the recording of the investigation. Yes. I don't know this woman. I had never met her before that day. I've never seen her again. If she knocked on my door right now, I wouldn't know that it was her because I don't even remember what she looks like. But I remember this experience to this day. 
And so, um, you know, when I think about it, um, the, the message that I got from this and that we know our parents have told us as well is that we need to always credentialize ourselves, right? Like we, you have to be the best of the yeah. best or they will come for you, yeah. right? They're going to come for you regardless. Totally. Right. But, you know, and so this lesson in this moment where she's basically saying, like, you need to know your shit, like you need to get on top of this because students will come for you. Colleagues will come for you. And the reality is, is that it was true. And so this was not the last time in my career, uh, you know, and again, I've worked in many different sectors at this point uh, that someone has challenged me, Mm. you know, throughout all of these investigations, if you will, it's always shown that I'm not being racist, but it's interesting to see that these human rights policies and legislations that were actually meant to protect marginalized people are utilized by people who are racist to actually attack us. Because even if you are vindicated in the end, the reality is you still have to go through that traumatic process of showing up to that meeting, having your notes ready, proving your innocence, right? And so it's interesting to see how racists have learned to actually utilize the tools that were meant to be anti-racist in their favor. Right. Right. And that we still haven't been able to navigate that as an education system yet. And so that was a formative lesson for me um, or an experience for me that has really shaped what I'm doing. Because here I am just like that. I ended up doing my PhD. (laughs) It's big in so many different ways. Right. Because it's also the one of the things that you just just said, another way that is typically told to particularly African and Caribbean kids in the UK is twice as hard, right? And so that sometimes that rhetoric and that narrative can be detrimental to the way in which some of us view ourselves. And so far as like, we are always on edge. You know, you mentioned that you rehearse a lot. That is something that means that no one can ever check for you because A and B testing, they're going to be the same, right? It's just fortunate that that kid was able to uh, have the recordings present for you. But also, right, because to your second point, even if you know yourself to be um, vindicated or to, to, you know, the, the outcome will be that you're vindicated from the situation, everybody who's Black is now tasked with this same bs that you have to go through which is to basically go through the motions right so even as you mentioned this other black woman that's in there yeah nameless faceless black woman but even for her to just give you that that nugget that wisdom in the moment right also speaks to the fact that this is not the first time after i've had to deal with this shit either and perhaps you know i may not have been in her in her space i may not have been so lucky to have kind of been able to exonerate myself in the situation as much as possible but also, you know, there's a phrase in Patwa that talks about Dapi Nohu for frightened, right? And so there's a way that there are some Black folk who are used as scapegoats. And so if we can do it to one and use them as an example for everybody else to not want to do the thing, um, we will do that. And so I'm glad that, you know, for yourself, as you've mentioned, nothing came of it. But when I think about the impacts and the implications for everybody who's Black who's involved in that, and I'm even thinking about what the news cycle is saying at the moment, where a person is able to say, Uh, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do what I meant to do. And we're so easy to be like, well, she said it was an accident, so it must be an accident, right? We think about the same thing with uh, Jean Botham. We think about the same thing with other people. It's just an accident. I didn't mean to. I I just thought it was. And we automatically give some people the benefit of the doubt versus the collection of data and evidence. And he said, and she said, and, you know, everything else that we have to walk into an already firing line situation where people, firing squad situation where people are already gunning for us, just to prove level 
It's bloody siren. And I know what it is, is that people don't like you challenging what's don't. And they don't. The biggest problem that I probably present to people is that I am well versed. That part. <laughs> right? And so let's do this. Let's dance. What do you want to talk about? Like, you want to talk about white supremacy? Let's go to settler colonialism, feminism, queerness, and trans youth. Like, where, where are we going to go? This conversation, right? And so yeah. I understand that my presence in the education system is a threat really? to these systems of power really? that benefit, right? That, that actually financially benefit from these oppressive systems being able to circulate and silence families and students absolutely right and so you know whether it is you know colleagues um you know or whether it is you know and again i've worked in multiple spaces or whether it's students or whether it's parents they determine that i am a threat to the status quo yeah. And so they will wield whatever they can. Like yeah. I can show up in perfection every day, you know, per perfect in the way I present myself, come off as nice, come off as well-dressed, articulate, Dr. Melissa Wilson. It, it doesn't matter. Right. They will come for you, yeah. right? Because they want to go back to the status quo of there silence. There you go. Right? Just be silent and play along, yeah. right? We have allowed you to come into this space. We are paying you, right, relatively well. So just stop talking about that nonsense and be silent. And just be silent. It's sort of like it's, um, and this is for perhaps more for the UK folks, but definitely like a, I've come up with, a, I was reflecting on it with a, with someone else. And I was basically saying that to me, from my vantage point, what I understand the experience be for Black women is that regardless of whatever happens, you're always going to be aggressive. You're always going to be surly. You're always going to have an attitude. You're always going to be like, it's always attitudinal that is given to Black women. Whereas what I find with Black men is that there's a level of disappointment because there's a level of ingratitude, right? So exactly what you just mentioned that we gave you a chance, right? You were one of, you were supposed to be one of the good ones. We know that we can't control our black women. We know that black women are already like, we don't offer them womanhood. We don't offer them femininity. We don't offer them any of the things that we couch, you know, protection in anyway. So they're a lost cause in and of itself. But with black men, the thing that they like to hold over them, I feel is this level of, but we, we were rooting for you and yeah you know, as a result of you not playing our game, we're just disappointed because now we have to take your toys away and now we have to, and that to me is the, I feel like that is the the allure of a lot of Black men being more docile in and of themselves anyway. Like there's, and again, it might go back to that binary of it's just seen that you are Malcolm or you are uh, Martin, you're, still, you're Steve Biko or you're Mandela, right? And so whichever one of those four, the outcome is still the same. We don't like you but we will vilify the more extreme version of you so that we can appeal to the side of you to be more docile because that's what we want in the black men we don't want we don't want you to feel this uh, that you've disappointed us even yes. though we're giving you nothing in and of itself in the first place it really is is that a, as a black woman like you can't win you know no. you really and when i say win just mean uh, when i say win i mean just like survive on a day-to-day -day basis right um, so for example, uh, you know, as black women, we are stereotyped, as you mentioned, as aggressive and loud and so forth. So for me, um, I love sharing on Twitter most days, uh, because again, they're my random thoughts that I just get to get out of my head and throw somewhere. Right. And I love, uh, entertaining a room of people in terms of like when I'm doing professional development, like you can put a thousand people around me and I will Beyonce that room out, like no one's business, right? Like I like doing that kind of stuff. I can feed off of people's energy and I'm teaching people and moving them and that kind of stuff. But, and this is the big, but that most people don't know about me. 
I am quiet when I'm around people that I don't know. Right. right? I, I'm naturally an introverted person, right? right? So this extrovert personality that I give off in order to, you know, do a job that I have to fulfill, it's not actually who real Melissa is. And so when I sit down in a meeting with people I don't know, or I'm at a conference or a banquet hall, you know, pre-pandemic with people I don't know, then they think I'm giving them attitude, right? Because how dare you show up as this Black woman and be quiet right now? I need you to dance You're for You're suspicious because we don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Well, what are you <laughs> like, are you texting someone right honestly, now saying that I'm here? Are you tweeting about me right honestly, now? Honestly, you're suspicious. Like, yeah, you're suspicious because you're not being loud. You're not being aggressive. You're not fulfilling my stereotypes. So you are making me feel uncomfortable. There you go. Right. And so, and so it's interesting how these stereotypes play out. You, you cannot win because if I'm quiet, I'm making people uncomfortable. If I'm loud or, you know, showing any type of emotional, what's no emotion whatsoever, then I'm playing into some sort of stereotypical notion that I'm a black woman. Right. And so again, what does it feel like to be a problem? Always. (laughs) Mm -mm -mm. That is so powerful. I, I haven't heard that quote before but yeah it's, it's a powerful one it definitely is a powerful one and then this is now the part where yeah speaking about how those formative moments have probably led to near misses or mishaps in a career of of 10 years plus in and of itself there will be moments where it's just like yeah I wouldn't do that again or I've seen the impacts of that and perhaps that's it's a bit it's a bit too much I don't want to don't want it to happen um over again or perhaps it was a near miss like had I continued on this trajectory I can now see where perhaps I would have ended up and I'm glad that there was an option to take a right turn and did something else and so this question basically comes from the premise that when I started teaching there was an event called cock-up clubs just in the UK uh so terminology that basically means like a, a god almighty like mishap that you talk about in the pub but you never really talk about in the workplace and so um every one of these events event after event after after event it was only white people and for the most part it was white men and it was things like you know um the 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 day when i almost lost the company a million or the day when like someone some obscene thing where it's just like are we is this real life or is this a tv show but (laughs) this is (laughs) right but it was it was very performative (laughs) partly performative but partly like Perhaps because of identity, again, it's like I could never believe that someone was able to have had this happen to them and kept their job. Such is the straight and narrow existence that I've been understood to believe is afforded to me. I can't believe that someone's able to be so outlandish and still turn up to work tomorrow and be welcomed back into the fold like well, nothing happened. Well, because we don't get that opportunity. Right? We don't we get that don't opportunity. Have opportunity to mess up. Right. I mean, you know, um, you know, Kika Ojo Thompson talks about this posture of perfection. People mm-hmm. are always expecting us to be perfect, right? Which is ridiculous, right? Because we're going to make mistakes, us know. And, and that's actually the essence of teaching as well as, you know. <laughs> and so, but then that's, that's where this question comes from, because it's exactly to your point, right? So what it does do is that it makes us, again, buy into this hashtag Black excellence. It makes us buy into this, this idea that we cannot make mistakes. I feel like it starts to become dangerous where, where we as Black folk, and I go back to something you said earlier, the idea that you are able to name all the people that have come before you because they have done things. They've done big things, small things, things that worked, things that didn't work, things to learn from. And I feel like if we are so censored and so sanitized that we can't say when things go wrong for us, we don't actually give an accurate picture of this is the thing to try in this moment with these variables and perhaps this is not the thing to try. And so I think this is one of those moments where particularly for Black folk, hearing mistakes and mishaps 
is quite helpful because it's like oh okay so I'm not a bad teacher if I didn't you know yeah. do whatever the situation might have been so I wonder for yourself like in the years that you've been in education and in the roles that you've had there have to have been some yeah. near misses or some cock up goodness yes I mean how much time do you have I mean I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding I'll, I'll give just two um the one thing that I you know I, I use the term regret loosely very loosely because I don't regret the work that I did but I reflect on this element of it um I was the coordinator of indigenous education for a school board for um uh, you know a couple years and um when I look back on my body of work there I'm very proud of what I accomplished um, I worked alongside Dr. Martin Cannon, who's Oneida from Six Nations, Oneida Nation from Six Nations. Um, and I, I was actually working with him in a class called Settler Indigenous Relations. And he was very much guiding the work that I was doing, even though people didn't know that that's who I was consulting with, because uh, I just happened to be in his class anyways. Uh, and he's now part of my dissertation committee. So we've had a long-term relationship academically. Um, and you know, I was working alongside uh, re relationships in the community with indigenous peoples, Ministry of Education representative. And so when I look back, I, I am proud of the work that I did. Like I did it from an anti-colonial lens, right? However, and there's this, this however caveat, in doing so, in taking on that role, I recognize that I stopped an indigenous person from having that role. And so I would never take that role again in terms of like specifically coordinator of indigenous education. You see in Ontario, they often take jobs and like merge them together. So we have like superintendents of like anti-impression, you know, in several different words. So, you know, maybe I'd take on a role like that, that had like anti-colonialism embedded into it. But specifically, my job was coordinator of Indigenous education. And after doing anti-colonial work for so long, and I'm still, thankfully, in very good relationships with many Indigenous people that I work with, you know, in, in different spaces, I know I shouldn't have taken that. And I hope going forward that those types of roles are for Indigenous peoples. And so that's one that doesn't take long to explain. But uh, nonetheless, I just feel like, you know, it's no one's ever asked. And that was one for me. Um, the second one uh, that was a near miss, so it wasn't a miss, but it's near, <laughs> almost there, right, um, is, is one of the jobs that I've done. And again, you know, I don't think most people that I know, especially on social media, know of all the different roles that I've had. Um, so not only have I had multiple roles in school boards, but like I said, I've worked in two different departments for colleges for like five years. Um, I was also the vice chair of our provincial human rights committee for OSSTF, which is um, cool. uh, our, our, uh, our union for secondary school teachers. And so I, I would just ask listeners to not try to imagine that they know who and what I'm talking yeah. about, but there's no way that they would. Yeah. Um, but the example is worthwhile sharing. And so I was working with someone uh, doing anti-racist work, because that's like basically the foundation of all the work I've ever done. And we did not see how uh, we did not see eye to eye on how to proceed in this work. Um, we were working together and this person and I just we did not vibe well together uh, for for two reasons in particular. One is that we just had very different identities from one another in every way you can imagine possible. And so I'll just leave that out there. And so not to give away who the person is, not that many people would know who they are anyways, but and then also the way that they approached work, they very much wanted to do it as like an institutional person, very behaving within the organization, not challenging really. And I was still quite young at the time. So I was very much like radical truth teller, like we just got to say how it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the more Malcolm X, right? Yeah. So, right? 
<laughs> All right. And so, um, so needless to say, it was causing significant tensions between us, okay. right? We were both, I, I'm what most people probably don't know about me is I'm actually a very nice person in spite of being like super anti-racist and anti-colonial. Like I'm, you can also be a nice person and want to yeah. tear down white supremacy. I actually feel like that maybe attributes <laughs> you being a nice person, but um, we were never mean to each other, but there was like palpable tension between yeah. us. And so for weeks, I grappled with leaving the organization and leaving that role and leaving that person on their own to do it without me. And in the end, I decided to stay. I decided to stay because I had committed to the role. I had committed to doing the work and I had committed to doing the work with that person. And so rather than leaving, I asked, I asked this person to have like a real talk conversation with me. Right. So we set aside some time, like a formal meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Like I said, like we need like a two hour window. Right. And, um, and I asked at the beginning of that meeting, right. Cause it, we were on outs with each other. So we did consider it a formal meeting at the time. And I just said, you know, we need to leave our roles aside right now. And I need you to just have some real talk of me versus you. And we need to talk about like, what are our strengths that we bring to this work? How are our strengths different, but we can benefit from them? And then how are our, our identities, our gender, race, our sexuality, how are these shaping how people are perceiving us and receiving the work? So that way we can learn how to work with each other and actually benefit off of each other's strengths. Why this was a, I didn't actually know at the time that this was a huge fork in my career. I didn't know that because I could have got up, packed my bags and went home because like I had so much experiences under my belt, just like today. Like if I want to move to a college or university, I could, right. I, I know that. So career and financially wise, I would have been fine. But what I didn't know at that time is that this relationship blossomed into one of the most important friendships that I still have to this day. Right. And I mean, like I taught this person because they didn't know how to do anti-racism work as well as I did. So I taught them that. But likewise, they gave me a little bit of their behaving. <laughs> right. And they taught me how to navigate an institution, That's which institution. Know, because I mean, I was just all out. I was all <laughs> out. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I had no censor. Right. And people were like, oh, snap. <laughs> And so this person was like, okay, if we're going to do real talk, you need to know that you just need to tone it down. You're at like a 10 and we just need to bring it down to like a seven and a half. Right. <laughs> so, right. And then we learned how to vibe with one another and how to protect one another. Right. right. So I knew when to step in because they didn't know what they were talking about and they knew when to step in and use their different identities to protect me in that way because we talked about that. And so the lesson for me is that we ended up surviving health together, right? And the lesson for me was that you don't throw people away, right? Because so often, so many people bring in toxicity into our life, right? That we are so ready to be like, you know what? I'm done with I'm you. Done. Don't talk to me. Don't, you know, don't look at me, you know? And then also as people who experience violence all the time, like yeah. it is a survival mode for yeah. us to know who to let in and who not to. Absolutely. But in this moment, um, you know, just sometimes there's a chance to actually develop something with someone who is at odds with you, right? And sometimes you, you might actually change for the better as a result of these differences. And I don't think we have gotten there yet when it comes to anti-oppression work. Mm -hmm. You know, as organizations, we often tell people that they are teams or partners or you're going to be working with this in, this in this team, but no one ever teaches us how to be a team. Yeah you're just given the label, right? Yeah. Like you now are working together, yeah. right? But no one actually ever says like, why does my blackness and my femininity matter in this team? In this team. 
And so we had to do that on our own. And like I said, this person now is like family, like literally if they called and said they had an emergency, I'd have to be like, you know what? We need to do this podcast, (laughs) you know, another time. Right. And so so when I look back on that moment, that fork in my road, if I would have packed up my bags and gone home, not only would I maybe have changed the trajectory of my career, but I actually would have lost someone who I didn't know at the time, but that we would end up actually like really potential there, beautiful relationship. Right. And so for me, that was a near miss that I still reflect on to this day. It's so powerful that it's so different. And I think, again, it's partly to do with the situational understanding. Perhaps there'll be more folk from where I'm from who would have said they would have packed up their stuff and left. Or if they had to have continued working with this person, they would have checked out from the actual impact of what the thing was supposed to have done. Something else I want to pull out is the idea of how does my identity impact the relationship that we have? One, to do the work if we're tasked to do a task, but also with the maintenance of like keeping our relationship intact. And I think that sometimes we can be, especially in doing this work, very quick to throw people away and say that actually um, you are not my kind of person. You are not the kind of person that I want to be around. Sometimes it can be to save face that it tells for a better story to say, and can you believe that this person was so egregiously terrible to me in public spaces and blah, blah, blah. And that's the story. And then you lose exactly what you just mentioned to me now is like, and so, so many years later down the track, this friendship is here because of, I stayed in the fire with that conversation at that time with that person. This person is tearing it up when it comes to anti-oppression work. I sprinkled a little fairy dust on this person. Okay, let me tell you, they got like a lot of lectures from me. Like I went into full professor mode and like, listen, I'm just going to, pick you up and we are going to start from ground one, right? I'm going to teach you everything. And let me tell you, we're tearing it up these days. So like not only in that way uh, of being friends, but like they are actually doing their own good social justice work. There you go, right? Without even having to be there with them. It's a big deal. And I I really like that. Thank you for that. Because I think that that's a big reflection to have, which is, yeah, just not be so hasty, right? To just to throw things away. Um, but I also hear in that story, there's a way in which you, it sounded to me, that you were going to take up space in your identity, right? So when you said, let's leave our titles at the door, let's just have it out. Like, what is like, what is it? What's up? What's going on? There's an element that to me that speaks to um, taking up space, you know, to kind of sit in your blackness, to sit in your identity. And I wonder where else that might have been a feature of your career. I mean, it sounds like it has been the entirety of your career has been navigating your identity and knowing where to take up more space and where to fit into a space and those kind of conversations. But yeah, um, have you navigated taking up space um, in your identity or identities um, throughout your career? Yeah, well, I think whenever I think of identity in my career, again, I have to go back to kind of my upbringing um, because, you know, we don't get to stand outside of our childhood, as many of our therapists have told us, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so true. Right? therapy 101, it's like, what happened to you as a child, right? Um, and so when I reflect on how I take a Blackness as in my career, I cannot separate it from the fact that I developed Black pride and love for Black people at a very early age. Um, you know, I wouldn't even be able to recall specific moments because it was just part of the household that I grew up in. Um, my dad was very vocal about his love for blackness, his love for black people. 
Um, he was immersed in the civil rights movement. So he was born in 1942. So he obviously was very oh, wow. happy. He turned 18 in 1960. And so, and he was also a little bit of a street kid, right? And so he was just like rolling with like musicians in the streets and like civil rights leaders, right? And like going to concerts and stuff. And so I heard those stories about black leaders, black musicians, black culture, all while growing up. Right. And so that gave me a sense of pride that I wouldn't have had otherwise if I was just left to dangle in this like white supremacist society. Mm-hmm. Um, I also became very aware of white supremacy at a very early age. Um, I had the great misfortune of growing up in London, Ontario. And sorry for any listeners from London, Ontario, but it was for me when I grew up there, it was so racist and so incredibly white. Uh, like people would go out of your way to out of their way to be racist towards you, mm-hmm. right? It's a very overt, explicit type of racism mm-hmm. uh, where I got in physical fights, racial epithets said to my face in very nasty, derogatory ways, taunting um, to the point that when I decided to become an educator, I did not even apply to the school board that I grew up in, like Thames Valley District School Board. I was just like, I'm on one wow. ticket out to Toronto because yeah. I need to be around racialized people as a form of safety. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't really recall a time that I felt that I needed to reduce my blackness or, um, felt uncomfortable about it or assimilated into whiteness, although all of us do. So I'm just, sure. just absolutely, I'm just, cause I can't recall it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. <laughs> right. But, um, for me, the way I've navigated is one location for me is key. Right. And so. Um, you know, going to the GTA, I find safety and comfort of being around other Black, Indigenous, um, and and racialized people, right? Like I said, you know, my mentors are all Black and South Asian women, right? Who who I would not be able to breathe without them, right? Right? Like, and and, and men as well, actually, yeah. South Asian men uh, that are, in, and Black men that are, um, you know, my mentors as well. Um, and then seeking out these, this education to really teach myself uh, or be taught of how to articulate white supremacy and analyze patriarchy. That taught me how to navigate these spaces as well and stay safe because I knew what I was talking about. Um, and so I've always been talking about race and racism and blackness throughout my entire career, right? Like literally from a teacher in the classroom, I was that teacher that was like, let's talk about the isms. Like, and at the time, that's what it was called, the isms, like racism. Yeah, yeah. Um, every office that I've had, I put up like black affirming decorations, like in my current office as a vice principal, I have Angela Davis and Malcolm X behind me, like literally, you'd have to look at me and look at them at the same time, right? Not that. <laughs> um, you know, I speak, I publish, I panel about racism, right? And so I really, I don't know how to be in a space without being who I am. Uh, and, and if I have to not be who I am, then I don't need I don't to live in a space. Right. I don't, I don't want to. So for me, um, I also, and something I can share with listeners because it took me a long time to develop this. Maybe it's just like wisdom or middle-aged and whatever, um, you know, wisdom coming in, but I get a lot of comfort of uh, thinking about my ancestors. And when I say my ancestors, I mean, yes, my grandparents and, you know, my parents, you know, my dad has passed already. And, um, but I also am talking about like the ancestors of like the greater diaspora, the greater African Caribbean diaspora, whatever they may be. And the fact that they resisted racism for us, they found ways of celebrating their blackness, whether it was in the basement of a church, right? Like dancing and feeding each other, whether it was in someone's kitchen, right? With all babies on the waist, right? You know, like they found ways. And so if they fought white supremacy, then it is incumbent upon us to carry that torch with us, right? And, and to know that this is an intergenerational struggle. Yeah. And so 
the ways that I navigate, um, you know, and take up space is by, you know, finding affirmations from other Black people, right? Being around friends and family, working on projects around racism at the school board gives me hope. Um, being in affinity spaces. So, um, you know, Kiko Ojo Thompson often has affinity spaces. And sometimes I just go because I want to hang out with other Black people. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, it's going to be a Black space. I want, I'm in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't even care what the topic is. Fully right? know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or like my Instagram, like, you know, I'm not huge on Instagram, but like I follow probably like a hundred Black artists Listen. because the feed is all Listen, like Black. That is artwork, right? That's the thing. Like the words that are affirming, the images that are, I don't want to see foolishness I just don't want to see things that I'm going to by accident see anyway I want to intentionally see things that I want to curate for myself feel that I know thank you for (laughs) understanding what I was saying right and then even as a vice principal as well um you know it's interesting because people I guess who aren't immersed in blackness you know they want me to talk about running a black students association which I've done for three years or they want me to talk about work with the black community, right? And like make it like almost like a resume piece, which in some ways it has to be, right? Because you know, that's where we're trending right now. Right. Right. But but um, or not trending, but that's where you know the work is going mm-hmm. that direction. And um, but the reality is, is that what I often talk about with people who are colleagues close to my office is that they give me love. You know, working with black students brings me joy and fulfillment that I don't have the words to express (laughs) you know like the so you know it's not me going to them it's us coming to each other they are they're not the community they are my community yeah often we haven't gotten to that place of employers seeing their black employees or the black employees that work with them right as we are the community absolutely that like you're reaching out to other people, naming them community. I'm the community. I'm, I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could change my title every day. I'm still going to be black. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one signifier that is not going to change ever. <laughs> right. And so, and so I, so, you know, how do I navigate spaces by being with other black people, you know, just even picking up the phone, you know what I mean? Or like uh, someone will see like a tweet or uh, that I put out and they'll text me and just say, Oh, you know, are, are you good? Right. Like just yeah. staying yeah and just being real because you know what my ancestors did not do all this work for me to pretend I'm white that part right that's absolute freaking part oh I love that answer and and yeah game recognized game meeting of the minds on the same page as you my only um deviation for myself is blackness and queerness and kind of coming to a point where that I could accept both of those two things as being me right you know like I'm not more of one or less than the other like the first thing you're going to meet about me is that I'm black and that that is the first and foremost but then straight after like photo finish second is going to be queerness because in parts to be black is to be queer anyway right so there's just aspects of like that says that all the time yes right so there's just aspects of that too so yeah I fully 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 endorse the message (laughs) um so with that though again um it sounds like you already know a role that you play within the ecosystem of Blackness. And so it's kind of like an understanding that it takes all types of Black. It's not like one shade or one performance or there are no binaries when it comes to Black. How you arrive into a space being Black, as long as you are cognizant of that fact that you are Black, is part of the ecosystem. I guess I wonder what role you'd say you, you play in, in, um, in the ecosystem of Blackness, if you like. Yeah, and you know, I really think it just depends on what space I'm in, 
right? Because when I'm in university classes or even teaching at college where there's just an expectation of like deeper critical thinking, um, you know, uh, and it's just expected, right? Then I can be very critical, right? Because, um, well, you know, aside from <laughs> college moment where the person literally said I was racist, right? So let's say, for example, if I'm sitting in a class with Shreen Rasak, right? And like, I mean, you know, or Martin Cannon, right? Like, I mean, I can talk about white supremacy and settler colonialism literally all day with Martin Cannon and we wouldn't even blink an eye to it. Like we, you know what I mean? Just going through all these different conversations, right? Um, and so, or if I'm paneling, like, and I'm showing up to talk about white supremacy, right? Then I'm going to bring it guns a blazing 100%, right? Or if I'm authoring, like if I'm, if I'm publishing something, uh, then I'm speaking in a certain critical way. But for me, where it changes sometimes, and I know people may interpret this as code switching, but it's not. It's actually that, you know, in public education, the, like the vast majority of educators are white. Right. They're about, I think it's like 80% of educators in probably in other places, it's even higher than that. But even in spaces where, you know, almost 90% of our students are not white, right. still 80% of the educators Absolutely. are. And for me, one of the identities that I also have a hard time letting go of is that I'm an educator. Right. And so I have throughout my whole career taught people how to understand race and racism. And so where I kind of sit in the ecosystem depends on what I'm doing in the moment, but I know at some point somebody's going to have disdain that I will sit in a room of 200 white people and teach them how to see white supremacy, okay. right? Teach them how to be, how to navigate whiteness or even understand and recognize their own whiteness, right? And then also have to navigate the white fragility that is going to inevitably, you know, beat me up. Come up. Yeah. Right, of someone crying in my lap or wanting to send an email of how awful Melissa is. Right. And so I know, like, and I've heard other people say this, and so I, this, these aren't my words, but it's a notion that I've, I've experienced is that what's interesting about being in the ecosystem of Blackness is that you can never win. Right. Like, you're never fully accepted. Right. Because in the Black community, you know, everybody wants you to go hard all the time, right? And believe me, I'm there. I love that dance, right? Like that's what brings me joy in life, right? But at the same time, you know, um, you know, the white community will get rid of you in a minute, right? And like, I work with 80% white people, right? And, and at the end of the day, people may see it that I am, you know, working with white people, so to speak. But I actually see the work beyond those white Absolutely people. Absolutely, that I am focusing on the students in their building. I'm focusing on the South Asian students in their building. Yeah. I'm focusing on the Black students in their building, and I'm focusing on the Indigenous students in their building. Yeah. Right in this moment, there are white bodies in front of me, but I'm actually trying to impact the students that they work with. Right, because we can't have racists everywhere. And someone, one of us from the group, one of us from the team black <laughs> needs to go in, right? Needs to go into team white and say, listen, this is the deal. Racist, Absolutely. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like at some point we have to have these interracial conversations. Yeah. Right. And it's not for everyone. So I'm no. not saying that everyone else needs to do it, but I'm just saying that understand that when I do it, it's not me giving up or like taking off my badge of blackness or like handing in my black card to someone, right? Or like switching <laughs> teams or code switching or all the analogies that are ridiculous that I've heard over the years. It's that those white teachers are teaching black children from our community. And I, it is my, it is incumbent upon me. It is my responsibility in so many ways to do that teaching. One, I'm an educator. 
Two, I'm a vice principal, right? So signed up to lead school. Yes. Whether it's the school I'm working at now, the school I'm working at in the future, the central board office positions I may or may not have in the future, it doesn't matter. It is my job to lead. That is literally what I've signed up for. So if you're not in the game to lead, don't lead. Come out of the game. Right, right? It's not for you, right? Really. In addition to that, I have not gone to school for this long to keep the knowledge to myself. Right. Like, what is the point of me going to school for 10 years, right? Like 10 years for graduate work. And that's, that's in addition to, you know, whatever the 10 years before that, right? Like I have four degrees. I didn't do that just so I could hang them on the wall. Like quite honestly, I barely even make it into my office. Most of the time I don't even see them. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like for some reason I have an office, but I work at my dining room. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> So, and so it, it is incumbent upon me as an educator, as a vice principal, as someone who's doing graduate work and actually understands these concepts to go into a white community, a predominantly white community and say, listen, y'all need to stop hurting these children. Yeah. And we are going to start wherever you need me to start. Yeah. If you are well on your way, because a lot of white people are, a lot of white people are quite conscious Right? And I think we come with a deficit mind frame that all white people don't understand. It's not true. I have mm-hmm. worked with some white disruptors out there, okay, yes. that you know are ready to have that yes. conversation. So if you're there, cool, let's dance there. Right. But if you also are, you know, oh my God, everything's colorblind. I love everyone. If you're there, honey, I can help you, Emily. I can help I can you help too. You. <laughs> like, you know, but like but so it's that, but it is that. It right. is and I, I the other thing as well I think it's like again when we talk about this this uh ecosystem it's a relay you said it already and I think I just want to amplify it again it's the case of before you burn out and get jaded or before you turn around and say that I wouldn't do it don't do it and mm-hmm. when you do get jaded and when you do feel a burnout coming along preserve oneself step back from it and say that you know what I've done what I can do for as long as I could endure it someone else come and take over this thing but to poo-poo on the whole project because it's something that you either are unwilling to do or uh, incapable of doing and just saying that anyone else who's doing this work they should also be vilified because of your choices is not helpful so I fully agree to like the point that like you need to run you need to run relay between both communities to be able to say here's what's going on um here's what needs to happen and bring that information back in some cases you need to know what what information to robin hood take from take from that community and bring it back into our own so that we know what the rules are what the game is i think one of the biggest educational deficits for our parent generation is not necessarily knowing the having sight of the codes of how the game is played in education And to your second point, if you are able to have sight of the codes and even control of the codes, why would you not go back and then say, here's what the codes are? Like, that's that's the system. That's the system that we're existing in. That's the old boys network. That is. So why wouldn't we? And I think uh, we are getting to that place where now we're starting to understand that we all need to be at the table. I need my sister over here to be doing the black radicalism, shaking things up, do it, go for it. I am going to support you, applaud you, celebrate you and speak your name into every room, right? We also need the black educators that are just, you know, in a kindergarten classroom and reading affirming literature. And that is their anti-racism work. Even as you say that, like one of the things that like, one of the big things for me is just allowing black boys to cry. Like when you talk about kindergarten teachers, it's like, that is as pro-black as any other work, right? Like having young boys from an early age know that emotional range is available to them. How are you feeling? I'm feeling A, B, C, D, like 
that is allowed to you because between white supremacy and sort of very binary existences that black folk have or respectability politics, very quickly boys are not allowed to have yeah emotions you know what I mean so like as you say like and this is a very visual thing for me that like yeah as fully the person who's pontificating over here is as important as the person who's nurturing over here and both roles are needed yeah and so we just need to get to that place where we recognize and and, and stop criticizing one another yeah. right and this is all people right yeah. so you know it, it's just there's just so much hate sometimes for people that do anti-racism work yeah. because people imagine that they know what we're doing Right. Just because I'm working with someone who is in a certain position, whether you consider it high or low in an organization, you don't know what that conversation sounds like. Behind the doors. Let me tell you, I am the queen of real talk. Right. And, and I can get to the point very quickly. I can rehearse human rights <sighs> policies like nobody's business. Right. But at the same time, I will do it in a way that the person doesn't leave crying. Right. And, and could I say it in a way that ma makes them cry? Sure. Absolutely. Right? So, but why would I bother? Because I, I need want all of that. them to actually grow. Yeah. Right. And I want them to come back and say, you know, I tried what you said. I failed in this part. I was successful in this part. What do you think we should do next? You know what I mean? And so there's just something about that that's awkward because it is, uh, you know, there's always been this, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when we were having a conversation off the mic, there is always this conversation of, are you Malcolm or are you, uh, you know, Martin, right? But the reality is, is that blackness falls so much in between and changes and transforms because white supremacy is always transforming as well, right? So white supremacy is never what you think it is because the moment we are able to identify it starts transforming. Yeah. And so for me, I've been chasing it. I've been chasing white supremacy for 10 years. I'm like, there it is. There it is. That's how it comes <laughs> up. Right. And the second I think I understand it, right, it goes and it's changes. Up again. You know, it's Funny. like, it like puts on some sort of mask and moves on in life and like as another human being entirely. Right. You know what I mean? And so, uh, and so if white supremacy is transforming like that, then we as well right, need exactly. to change our pedagogies like that too. Exactly. Right? Oh, I love that. So then round it out then. Um, and you've already done, I think you've done a great job of already giving, as you, you mentioned before about sprinkling the fairy dust, right? So um, the idea of the reflections that you might have for others, how you've got to this point in your career and what they perhaps could take from it. Yeah, I mean, I can only reflect on, you know, my perspective, but again, other people may have other opinions. Um, first of all, if someone wants to leave education because they are experiencing violence, I affirm that decision, right? Because all of us have been there. <laughs> all of us have had a moment like, you know what? <laughs> is it all worth it right like you know because I, I always think to myself like I grew up poor so if I need to struggle oh uh, okay <laughs> like a five -year okay period, I know how to batch cook I know how yes. to listen I'm for this totally. oh my gosh my, my partner and I we both joke about that like listen if we became poor again we'll be all right and so so do you you know people who you know decide to come in and decide to leave I affirm that because it can be a violent space to work within Absolutely. it can be However, uh, you know, the way that I survive is one is learning from others. Like we need to humble ourselves because no matter how high you think you are in the game, there is always someone that has already done and said exactly what you are doing and saying, right? And like, and I mentioned some of their Preach. names at the top, right? Preach. You know, and so we need to just humble ourselves and continue to learn from community 
continue to learn from people who don't have, you know, glorious titles and, you know, acronyms after their names. And, and then also just learn from the educators who have come up in the space and appreciate the differences, right? Because again, I think so many people are able to cast away people who did this respectability politics, but what did they learn from that? Right. And why were, and do you right. understand that historical context? Because you said you're a historian, so am I. Yeah. So you and I can imagine what that space was like, right? And so we are like, okay, I got that. I understand why you did that, right? But people want to cast people away, not knowing anything of what they're grappling with, right? So, uh, so often, you know, you know, people will criticize people that are working within the institution, such as myself, because if you are working within the institution, then you are already part of the problem. Institutionalized, yeah. And so, you know, the, um, you know, the criticism is warranted, absolutely. But at the same time, I often sit back and say, you have no idea what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Again, you don't know what those conversations sound like in a closed door room, right? Right. And so you don't know the work that I'm doing or what it looks like and what the result is going to be, right? So, so learn from each other appreciate differences celebrate one another but also you know and I mentioned it at some point uh, throughout tonight that really recognize that this is civil rights work that's what keeps me going right people look back in history and they recognize things like you know slavery owning someone else is wrong and that's racist racial segregation well that's obviously wrong lynching well that's wrong minstrel shows well that's wrong right but they actually don't see that we are living in, in an era of explicit and subtle and nuanced and structural and individual hyper anti-black anti-indigenous homophobic transphobic transphobic sexist era right because it's so normalized we are the so normalized yeah that they don't see it right and so you know people need to recognize that as you are challenging these systems that is a form of our civil rights work in this era People may speak about us in the future, maybe they won't, but this is our contribution mm. to this legacy mm. of civil rights work, this intergenerational work that we must contribute to because personally, my ancestors died to do this work. The least I can do is show up and get a paycheck for it. You hear what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Fully, like, fully. like, it's not that bad. You know no. what I mean? Like, you know, it's bad moments for sure, awful years for sure, and awful stints of time for sure. It's that. It is that. It's listening to each other. It's making sure that we make space for each other. It's also being very clear about that. The one thing I just want to highlight is when you then put this work as being civil rights work, you remove or you downplay or at least you check when your ego is driving you in doing the work because the work is going to outlast you. Like you are not going to survive um, racism in this lifetime. It's not going to work. So it's like an asteroid coming to Earth. The best that you can try and do is just 1% shift the trajectory so that when a damn thing comes, it just misses the planet completely, but you are not slowing that shit down. So it's like being, assuming that in your lifetime, you are going to be the code cracker of racism. Thumbs up to you, but ain't gonna happen. So (laughs) I fully agree that like the idea of doing it as a civil rights um, effort unlocks a lot of breathing space pressure from having to be so perfect at the work and so 
there has to be a pretty bow at the end and like a you know conclusive element it doesn't to have it. to be perfect but it has to continue it has to continue right we need to celebrate one another who are doing the work right yeah. so i see so many people coming up and i i've thought about making a list of people that i'm seeing as coming up but then i recognize that i used to actually sometimes hate it when people would label me as coming up and i was like are you kidding me i've been doing this for this many years right so there's actually a an, an actually like a, a very hierarchical that. So you know, I get so, you. I get you. When you celebrate people who are coming up after you, there's a moment of maybe mis misstepping <laughs> and insulting people. So, but what I try to do is recognize that there are people that are coming up and they are wanting that baton. They are like, I got you. I've got this. I know how to do this, right? So when I need to take a break or just step away or just delete all my tweets or Go do for something, it. it's over to right? you. <laughs> really? Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And honestly, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I can't really even put into words. I know I've like been very clunky with some of the things that I'm saying to you, but I think that's partly because that's I'm still fanboying, like over the fact that you are exceeding everything that I read about you online through your tweets, who <laughs> I then met on LinkedIn. And then now to have like, you know, the three dimensional appreciation of you um animated speaking moving <laughs> on a zoom call to record this i'm i'm really really fortunate and i'm really really like humble to have had you give your time to this because i do honestly believe that i i i'm fortunate in having moved from the uk to canada and continue this conversation here and kind of then recognize that actually the same things that i'm talking about back in the uk still exist in canada and there are people over here that are doing the same work as well it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's reinvigorating because it is the same journey just on a different platform or in a different a different track, but it's the same race. And so um, thank you so much for, for joining me on this. And I really, really hope that it, yeah, hits, um, hits chords with quite a few people back in the UK here as well. And the more time that people listen to it and share and everything else that they start to recognize where there are similarities of the same journey that we're doing and there is far more use in cohesive, collective, unified work than there is in the separation of you over there and you over there and you over there. So. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your patience with us meeting up. I know I appreciate that because life is busy. Life is That's the part, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And and also just I appreciate your positive energy. Like, again, uplifting one another, right? And I, and I meant it when I said it. If you need something, you just let me know. Yeah. That's all I said. Welcome to Ontario. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>